2: I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, and in this episode I am joined by the Chief Content Officer of Goop, the lifestyle brand created by Gwyneth Paltrow that started as a newsletter and is now an online publication, physical books, beauty brand, wellness portal, and so much more. That's right, Elise Lunan is joining me on the show. I'm very excited about it because if you think Goop... You may think about jade eggs, intimate steams and alternative therapies, and you'd be right to in many ways because, well, that's what tends to make the headlines. The stuff that makes you go, they put what where, or they pay that much to do what. It's very, very easy to throw shade. It really is. But there's no denying the team at Goop have created something interesting that obviously speaks to a lot of people. So I was interested to speak to Elise to find out how they've created such an intimate and trusted dialogue with so many millions of readers for what's coming on to now their 11th year. Goop has been slightly ahead of the curve from day one, though, it has to be said. Trends they talked about at the beginning, the things that were criticised even are now completely normal. The concept of gluten-free was seen as, oh gosh, ridiculous. But now, we're all aware of a gluten-free diet. We've all heard of it. We've all even potentially tried it. We've definitely probably eaten a snack that was gluten-free, thinking it was not gonna make us bloat in the afternoon. I know I have. But they've also been ahead of the curve in wellness, generally, in beauty and health, and also how they reach people. They identified and filled white spaces. And white spaces is a white spaces where an unmet and unarticulated need or needs are covered to create innovation opportunities. So, you know, a white space, it didn't exist before, basically, whether that's in a podcast or most recently, their global summits. The reason why I'm chatting to Elise is because she was over in London for the first global summit uh, based in London. They've done them in uh, the US and in Canada previously. And as they say on their website, we take a curious, unbiased, open-minded and service-centric approach to the work we do. We test the waters so that you don't have to. We will never recommend something that we don't love and think worthy of your time and your wallet. We value your trust above all things. And I have to be honest, that's how I approach the content of this podcast. I think about what you want. I think, will I feel good talking to you about it? And if I don't, it doesn't get featured. Simple as that. If I do, then I'll probably do multiple episodes. I was also really interested to speak to Elise about her career because she started out on magazines and has ended up as the CCO, the chief content officer, of a massive digital outlet. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know that my career started out in magazines and I know that being ahead of the digital curve, as it were, is not easy. So to get to speak to Elise to find out how she made career choices, swerved bad career moves, and avoided situations where she wasn't learning really intrigued me. And she didn't disappoint. She has had the kind of credit career trajectory that I would have loved. And I know so many people look to someone like Elise and think, wow, the choices that you made, look at where you are now. It's not a plotted path. That was really smart. And so in this episode, I kind of tell her to, I ask her to um, <laughs> tell me how she did it. In this conversation, we also talk about the danger of boredom, how and when it's time to take risks. Goop's ability to polarise and a lot more besides. All the links to everything discussed and to Elise will be in the show notes, which, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. But for now, making her debut on the Emma Gunn show, it's Goop's chief content officer, Elise Loonan. Well, this is Delightful. Elise Lunin, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is a conversation that as I have prepared for it, I have got more and more excited. Really? Really, genuinely. And also because as I began to peel away the layers of your (laughs) career, which is really outstanding and really interesting, I noticed quite a lot of symmetry between your career and my career. And I thought, hmm, we're going to have a great chat. So I'm doubly excited and delighted to have you here. Well, I'm doubly excited to be here. (laughs) Um, For context, I know I've given you a glowing introduction that the listeners will already have have heard, but you are the chief content officer of Goop. Yes, exactly. Which, that's quite
3: a role. I know. Who even knew? (laughs) Right? Um, Yeah, no, I, I joined Goop five and a half years ago. Um, from a career in magazines Mm -hmm. like you and, um, and then have, we've sort of, it's funny, like the decision to do content versus like editorial, Mm -hmm. um, is like, I think a testament to where we are in time, which Mm -hmm. is like content takes many forms and there's no longer strict sort of editorial. And like you, we have a podcast and. Mm -hmm. Well, which you host. Yeah. Yeah. Gwyneth does some of it. I do most of it. It, I think originally we thought it would be like a 50-50 deal, but maybe it's a 20-80. She's hard to schedule. She's busier than I am. Well, I mean, who knows what the schedule must look like. It's crazy. It's aligning stars, literally.
2: So I want to I want to drill down into you if that's okay. We will sure. obviously talk about Goop because the reason that we are even having this conversation face to face is because uh, Goop is having its first
3: health summit in London. Exactly. Had, had them elsewhere in the world. Yeah, this is our seventh. <coughs> it's primarily been um, Los Angeles and New York. We did Vancouver just to try out international, mm-hmm. and now here we are back where Goop began. And the response has been pretty. I mean. Even in
2: my small circle of beauty colleagues, there's been chat like, "Isn't it interesting that Goop here?" Yeah, and it's just it's part of a it's it's part of a massive conversation now.
3: I think so. It seems to be that um, you know there's clearly we're we're part of it, but there is this wider wellness surge Mm. happening across the globe. Mm. that maybe originated it probably I would say maybe even originated in Australia I feel like Australia is ahead of LA mm. and then it's made it to New York and now it's sweeping across, <laughs> sweeping across. L- Europe and taking London by a storm and we will come in we will come on to that but um
2: as I said when I started doing my research and I started finding out a bit more about you prior to goop um there were so many things that really stood out to me. And one of the quotes that I want to say back, <laughs> back at you, because there's actually one, and you'll know exactly which one it is, listeners, because I know you know me well enough. There's one that made me actually well up. But I wanted to start off with the fact that, um, and again, I've done all this research on the internet, so if it's not quite 100% <laughs> right. Um, but working has never not been part of my identity. Mm, that's true. And I wondered... Where did that come from? <laughs> and because I feel the same way. I feel that I've always wanted to like graft work. Mm-hmm. I've always got to have a task yeah. that I'm doing. Um, and sometimes I feel like maybe I'm weird for being like that.
3: Yeah. Well, I was talking to my therapist about this actually this week. And he was, <laughs> because I was like, but I think I'm really well adjusted. And he's like, sometimes you can be well adjusted to the wrong things. But I... Honestly, I trace that back to my parents who both grew up poor. My mom grew up sort of in a food insecure home, the oldest of seven Catholic kids, sort of, I don't think that she had enough to eat, honestly. And um, my dad is South African, um, also grew up without a lot of means. And so they, it was like part of my, they both operate from a little bit of a place Mm. of scarcity and a little bit of a place of fear, if that makes sense. Mm. And my dad's a doctor. He's my parents are totally comfortable, but that was sort of the, there was a lot of anxiety in my house, particularly from my mom about like, what are you going to be when you grow up and are you going to be able to support yourself? And I think that that as a child Mm. became a part of my identity Where everything was about being productive. And it's really served me well. So it's hard for me to be upset about it. Mm. But, um, you know, as a kid, I remember my parents put the TV in the cold dark room and we didn't have cable. And I grew up in the country and we had horses and it was beautiful. But if my dad came home from work, like during the summer, and we were watching TV, he was like, I'm so disappointed in you. I can't believe that you're watching TV on a beautiful day. And then, of course, we would have to, like, go upstairs and go outside or start reading. But there was this sort of, like, push to maximize. Mm. Not a lot of downtime. um, Making it sound really terrible. But, like, I just read a lot. I used to read for Ice Cream Sundays at Dairy Queen. (laughs) Um, And that's just sort of, it's been, like, ingrained in me. And now I don't know how to turn it off.
2: Yes. Okay. Well, that obviously that does come back to a lot of the problems that we're all dealing with now, which is how do I switch off? Yeah. But it feels like that thing of don't, uh, don't be, don't be a passenger. Like your life, it's a sunny day. Join the dots,
3: go out and totally play with the horses. I don't know. I didn't have, horses yeah, no ride the horses and there's like a lot of beauty in it. And again, it's like, it's hard to be critical of it, but I do think that what has happened, if I'm being honest, is that a lot of my self-worth has been predicated on being so productive. Mm -hmm. And so that's the sort of stuff that, like, as an adult, I'm like, I need to unwind that a little bit. Like, I can be worthy Mm -hmm. of love without being a workaholic.
2: Yeah. We're coming back to that (laughs) later, don't you worry, because I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. And coming the the reading for the... um, The Dairy Queen. Yes. (laughs) I love this quote, my mother doesn't believe in boredom, so you have to be reading, working, or doing.
3: Yes. My mother does. And she finds boredom offensive. Mm -hmm. She has chastised my children for even saying I'm bored. And, you know, she's... And not only is it she doesn't believe in boredom, she also is like, I'm not here to entertain you, and, Mm -hmm. like, other people aren't here. You need to figure out how to entertain yourself. So... That did breed a lot of creativity mm. um, and a lot of self, like a, a lot of self exploration, which sounds like something else, but <laughs> we can come onto to that later too, if you like, <laughs> but a lot of, um, exploration and, uh, but yes, doing, mm-hmm. it's a lot of doing. So as an adult, I'm, I've been really focused on trying to learn how to be,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and that's hard. The the being present, just being, just
2: just being. I'll be chill. Yeah. Is it because of FOMO? Is it because you think if I'm being, I
1: might miss
3: something? No, it's not. I think it's it's more of a fear of if I'm not if I'm not doing something, then I'm not doing enough. Yeah. So it's funny. I had this. My mom's an amazing cook, and I knew how to cook. Like as a child, it's part of it. Same part of this childhood. Like she used to make me read um, cookbooks. And she really wanted me to be a, a well-adjusted cook. So I had to read um, Julia Child how uh, <laughs> to and, um, and make dinners and as part of, I guess, this, in, in this quest to be well-rounded. And, she, um, and then I found, as an adult, that I would like, go to the grocery store and buy things, and then I wouldn't make them, almost in protest. For, it was, and I went to see this woman. This is so goopy, but she's called the kitchen healer. And she's amazing. And I went, she lives in Pasadena, which is the east side of Los Angeles. And I was like, what is going to happen? And I went over there and she like made me take off my shoes. And we walked around her backyard with her chickens. And she fed me um, and talked to me and like fed me this like simple meal and does some body work and was just talking. And she was like, um, she's like, you know, I spend my time with these women who have designer kitchens. Where like the stove has never been turned on, mm-hmm. and like the stove, like the lighting of the stove has a lot more meaning than just like the lighting of the stove. Like women, not the places in the kitchen, mm-hmm. but like as women, we're nurturers, we're feeders.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and she was like, "I have to, you have to figure out a way for the for the kitchen not be a not to be a place where there are things for you to do, but a place where you can be." Mm-hmm. And that was it, literally. I started cooking. Isn't that weird?
2: So it took the function out of it and put the fun into she it. She was or... just
3: sort of like figure out how to make it a place where you can be. And, and now I'm like, oh, this is actually a really nice way to enjoy being with my kids because it's open mm-hmm. and they can sort of like come and go and like help in air quotes. <laughs> and I don't know, something shifted in me. Where I was like, "Oh, this! I don't have to do this. I can actually find a way to mm. enjoy this and like feel like this is meditative and not about producing."
2: And did that transpose onto work and other areas of your life?
3: Um, it gets work gets messy for me because I really love what I do, mm. and so like the reading for pleasure and work become very intertwined.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah, you know, like I'm always reading, and theoretically, it's like it's for a podcast or for a story, but I'm also sort of finding these like moments of revelation and joy in that. Mm. So it's hard. Like I really like what I do. Yeah. And it's who I am.
2: Yeah. I know you'll appreciate this. This book (laughs) that I'm pulling out,
3: oh yeah girl <laughs> but I've had this for about six weeks this is how do you say it G- G- Gabor Mate Gabor, Gabor that's Mate. the only I just literally um, I just finished Scattered or Scattered Minds I'm not sure what the title is in the UK mm. that's on my bookshelf he's amazing but it's
2: the one that I've really wanted to read for pleasure, but I also want to read it in the context of potentially creating content. Yes. So it's like every weekend when I see it, there's a yeah. a, a conflict.
3: Exactly. So like, theoretically, I've been reading through all of Gabor's books for my own sort of edification, but it also feeds work. So it's, and you
2: podcasted, right? Yeah.
3: I interviewed him a couple of months ago and like have sort of made him be my friend um, I do that with a lot of my guests right <laughs> I'm like hi it's me again. Can I come to Vancouver to see you? um No, he is an incredible man, doctor healer, thinker um so yeah, it's hard to find the line it is hard to find the line and the thing I found quite interesting about what you talked about
2: that about not. Um, being bored or boredom being a bit of a yeah. thing in your household is then going into magazines yeah particularly women's interest magazines that the productivity thing I completely understand and the, but I also know that back when you and I were probably starting in magazines it was probably seen as quite a light-hearted career choice oh yeah or not particularly serious and so I wondered if you kind of ever had that thing of well, I want to go and do this. I know I have a great work ethic, but I'm going in. I'm going to talk about skirts.
3: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I went to boarding school and then I went to Yale, where I studied English and fine arts. And then I ended up. Um, I didn't think I could work in magazines. I thought I would never be able to afford to. And um, rich kids club. It's a rich kids club, um, and. I ended up getting a job at Lucky, which was a new magazine that Condé Nast had just started about shopping. And because I was a freelance, um, I've made more. And so I managed to financially make it work.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's okay. Um, Don't worry, the
2: listeners are cool. We're in a meeting room, listeners. Okay. There are some people outside. We're getting loud
3: on. and rambunctious. <laughs> um, so I... Um, so anyway, so. I got this job working at Lucky and I was, and it was theoretically freelance. And I was like, I can't, I like, I can't work at a woman's shopping magazine. Like, mm. and, but it ended up being the best job and the most rigorous training. And it was really important for me because I think I had sort of that like intellectual snob snobbery thing going where I was like, I need to work at the New Yorker or vanity fair. And I need, and then I was like, you know what? You can be smart and read lucky. Mm -hmm. And I think that so much in society, we tend to be like, you can't be a serious person and care about what you look like, or you can't be sexual and a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, Gwyneth talks about that a lot, like the boxing of women. Um, How dare you think you can be more than one thing? And so it was actually really important, I think, for me to work there, and it made me a much better writer. Much, much, much better writer. Because when you're writing a 40-word caption where everything counts, and you're also writing about 25 bags, and you need to explain the virtues and qualities of each one in a way that brings it to life and creates resonance and is entertaining. Um, that's hard mm-hmm. and, and isn't repetitive. Like you, it, it's like, it was like the, its own weird kind of ad-libs, yes. but it was also, <laughs> you like really have to stop and think about it. And I think culturally, the instinct is to always broad strokes everything and kind of be lazy, but mm-hmm. like, there was so much rigor to it um, that it was uh, training I wouldn't have gotten answering phones at Vanity Fair or Mm. um and it was like the other reason I was really grateful too is that it was only a positive magazine Mm. Kim France the founding editor-in-chief like she was like if it's not good then we're not going to include it so like we don't need to shit on things and we don't need to be snarky and snarkiness is cheap and Mm. lazy and we will only write about the things that we think are that we love that we think are worthy of people's money Mm -hmm. um we don't need to be it's not a magazine of criticism Mm -hmm. and I just feel like that's just a much kinder better place to come not that I mean clearly there's a place for criticism in the world Mm -hmm. but um not not there
2: yeah, it's it's how we should all approach social media as well. Right. Like
3: totally. It's
2: that thing of if it's um what is it? If you haven't got anything nice to say,
3: then don't say it. Yeah. In the magazine like Lucky. I mean, obviously in the news, of course, yes. criticize Trump all you want. <laughs> um but um but that's not what we were. It, it it came up at a time when I feel like women's there was a lot of snark and a lot mm-hmm. of, like, nastiness. And, I, and Lucky was very fresh, I think, yeah. in a way that it wasn't trashing.
2: And it also inhabited that space that
3: was um,
2: women spending their own money and it mm-hmm. wasn't cover lines about how to orgasm 19
3: times. And, yeah, or give... No, yeah. actually, give him 19 yeah.
1: orgasms.
3: <laughs> you know, like, how to give him the best night of his life. Yes. It, you know, like, that was also what was happening in the culture.
2: Now, it is hard in magazines, and I get asked this a lot. I get a lot of messages from people who are keen to still get into magazines or start creating content digitally, yeah. and they ask how to stand out, how to get in, and you and I probably both did a very similar thing, which was just make yourself indispensable.
3: Yes, a 100%. I mean, and I think that, that that advice still stands. Like, when I went to Lucky... um Again, I was freelance. I was working on a very, like, probably the worst section of the magazine. It was, like, the place where we gave free stuff away. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no glory in it. And I um, I just applied myself. Like, I essentially, my I don't think I was this calculating, but in my mind, I was like, I will do everything with ex- as quickly and as well and as responsibly as possible. Mm-hmm. And then... I'll be entrusted with more and more responsibility Mm -hmm. and then ultimately I'll make myself so indispensable that I'll get better work and then maybe someone will come in beneath me without being without pushing to give away that work so that was my process and I just stretched I just like stretched 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 until I had suddenly managed to get myself like a couple of promotions but it wasn't through even raising my hand it was through proving my resourcefulness Mm -hmm. and the fact that I could be counted on Mm -hmm. and that's still true I mean that's 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 how I gained um Gwyneth's trust that's always served me well in every job at every level like I just you know yeah you, you have to be indispensable
2: Yeah, you have to do your job, do it well, and I think think beyond your job as well, wouldn't you say? Totally,
3: yes. You do your job and try to do do the job as well that you really want Mm -hmm. while not abandoning the job that you have.
2: Have you ever been in a role or in a situation where you thought, I don't know whether this is right for me, Oh yeah. but I don't know whether it's because I need to get better at it or because it's ultimately wrong for me and I need to get out of it?
3: Yeah, so... I, yes, for sure. I'd say, um, I think for anyone who's starting out in your career too, like leaving your first job can be exceptionally hard. Mm. And I left lucky and I went to timeout New York. Um, and then I ended up going back to lucky and I left lucky because I had sort of an abusive coworker. I know who was making my life really miserable. And it was, making me pan and again, going to my own like safety and security issues that felt untenable to me. And so I ultimately, I'd say that was the hardest, getting another job was Mm -hmm. the hardest thing ever, particularly Mm -hmm. if you've only ever had one job. And then what I discovered in that process is like, if I could get momentum going, then the universe would always sort of help me Mm -hmm. and that I, that I would never stay in an unhealthy job again. And so I have certainly gone places and then intuitively just felt no. Like I went to, um, from Lucky, I went to Kanye Nast Traveler and then I moved to um, Los Angeles to work for this. Deeply and Glamorous. Shopzilla. Yeah, Shopzilla. And um, I wasn't at Traveler for that long. And typically, like, I like to really stay. Like, I'm a loyal soldier. Mm. And I went, and I was like, you know what? This is not This is not the right place for me. Mm-hmm. And I love the magazine, but I'm not going to be able to do the things I want. And I just, I kind of, I, because of that previous experience, it's. I have a very, if I'm not, like, want to, if, like, you don't really want me to be here, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to make, make you want me to be here yeah um and if it doesn't feel really productive then I'll go so that wasn't uh, that was easy mm-hmm. and then every time it's become progressively easier but hey I've been at when is gonna have to pry me out of my desk oh, dead hands. yeah <laughs> um you mentioned then about
2: you you weren't being particularly calculated but if you look back now yeah. at the decisions you made Do you look back and think, actually, maybe at the time I didn't
3: realize it, but I was, I was making good choices. I was being smart. For sure. I think like, I think that's why. And I also think that one of the things that has, that helped me, that probably helps you is that in my career, I've always known it's time to go when I'm not learning anything anymore. Because I think when you value your career, it's. Of course, it's your salary or your equity or, you know, whatever you're taking home at the end of the day. And it's the brand and the value that that brand might give your resume. Mm -hmm. But to me, the most valuable part is the education. So if you're not being pushed, like if you're sort of at a point where you're like, I know how to do this job without thinking Mm -hmm. and there's, I don't, there's no career tracking ahead of me. And I sort of felt that way at the end of my career in Mm -hmm. magazines, like what's next? Like, I don't want to be an editor in chief at a magazine. Um, had you previously? No, I was the, I was like near the top of the masthead, but that was not, that did not Mm. seem fun, nor did I feel like I was going to learn anything Mm. that I hadn't already learned by Mm. trying to stick around or trying to get one of those jobs. It just seemed like more money. Yes, but more pressure, um, in an unproductive way. Mm. And so whenever I feel like I'm not, Learning anything, or I have nothing left to add. Then, and I think that this should be is true for anyone. Mm -hmm. Then it's like it's time to change. So, when I left Nast, I'd grown up in brands that people cared about, and I went to Shopzilla, which was this very large, profitable internet company, this comparison shopping site. So unglamorous, no brand. It was me, me and bunch of engineers and digital product people and it was a totally new world to me and essentially I was like you know I'm gonna do this because I'm gonna learn about the internet Mm -hmm. which I'm not gonna learn at Condé Nast and worst case like I can come back to publishing and I'll have learned a ton Mm -hmm. and maybe I'll love it and I'm so grateful I did it it was an amazing job it was so fun because literally in every meeting... And I, I had I, they knew I knew nothing about the internet, to be clear. So I, I didn't fool them. But <laughs> in every meeting, I was like, what is that? And what are you talking about? And what's an MVP? And what's an AB test? And mm-hmm. um, what's SEM? And like all these acronyms for mm-hmm. digital minimum viable product, search engine marketing. Um, and I just... It was like going to college on someone else's dime. And then, when I met Gwyneth and decided to go to Goop, mm. I was very fluent. I'm not an engineer, and I'm not a digital product person, but I could sort of almost play one on TV.
1: you know? <laughs> like I knew enough
3: to be dangerous. Um, but i it was really helpful because i as as we sort of started, to build the team, I knew sort of the basics mm. of how to operate a digital business based on my time at Shopzilla. Mm. And everyone at of asked, I'm sure, was like, what is she doing? Because mm. it's scary to leave a brand and to go work in obscurity. Well, a
2: safe brand, a big brand, a loved brand.
3: Totally. And like publicists care about you and send you free things and you go to a big publisher and I mean, a big internet company and no one, everyone stops calling. But how did you deal with that? I, I was fine with that. Yeah. I think like early on in my career, I saw that sort of happening at, at, um, lucky that, you know, it's like people become friends with And I love publicists, so no disrespect to any publicists. Um, No tea, no shade. There are two in the room list. I know, there are two here who we love dearly. But um, I understood that dynamic, and I never really bought into it. And I wasn't a fashion editor, so I didn't work with as many publicists. And then when I went to Time Out, people stopped calling. And um, it wasn't as relevant Mm. as being at a Conde Nast brand. And I was like, okay. That's fine. And um but it was good mm-hmm. because then I never I just it didn't break my heart then and it didn't break my heart when I left and asked to go to Shopzilla when people really were letting, <laughs> like I fell off the face of the earth and then of course when I went to Goop everyone reemerged as my new best friend. But um
2: yeah, which is interesting because exactly the same thing happened to me when I left Magazines and you stop getting Products, you stop getting the phone calls, and it was a really good lesson for me. I'm interested to know if you felt the same way. It made me realize that it's a business. Yeah, and it t- it pulled my head out of my ass.
3: Totally, <laughs> it's a business, and then there's like a there's always an expectation, and I think it's I personally like to operate without owing anyone any favors, mm. and so and we don't really run goop by press releases. Um, If everyone else is writing about it, then I'm not interested. Like, I work with publicists, particularly in travel or when we need information, Mm -hmm. but we don't really work off of pitches um, because, in fact, the publicists that we work with the most are um, book editor publishers, so Mm -hmm. we'll work with them to book podcast talent or people for Mm -hmm. the site. But um, I want it to be clean you know as clean as possible for readers mm. and um and I don't I don't want to owe anyone anything mm. ever the integrity in the editorial as yeah, well yeah exactly is,
2: yeah I know exactly what you mean and I'm guessing that you probably uh, live by the idea that you never want to be the smartest person in the room never
3: <laughs> no I mean that's what I think is so exciting about life mm is just this to be able to be a perpetual student to like understand both that like how much i have to learn and how many like that's why our jobs are such a pleasure mm. right i mean to be able to talk to all these incredible thinkers um and people who have far more experience in life mm. um and far more expertise in certain subjects is such an honor and i just think of like humanity in general and how we're at the very tip of understanding most things Mm. that's what's the that's the wildest thing to me always like we don't really even understand how the brain works
2: no it's it blows my mind that we don't know about the ocean still like the deep ocean like whenever i get confused about something i'm like we don't know what's down there no we don't (laughs) and then i give myself less of a hassle (laughs) about not understanding how to like work my latest bit of tech or something no it's wild it is wild how much we do and we don't know um was there a lot of questioning? Because um, you talked about having... Previously, you've talked about having a fair bit of misery in the early days in, mm-hmm. in your career. And I wonder if you ever thought, am I doing the right thing? Should I leave magazines? Is publishing for me. Did you ever have... Were you on a knife edge at any point? And when did you feel, I'm actually, I'm good at this and I should be doing it?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, no, I, I, very early on... In my career, I interviewed with this amazing woman, Catherine Ross, who was at Prada at the time, and her husband does DIA, like DIA, that's museum. And now she's, I can't remember where she is. She's very involved in the art world, and she was working for Prada and the Prada Foundation, and I almost, she ended up not off. like she was offering me a job, and then somehow I didn't get a job offer. I can't remember exactly what happened, but... um, I would have taken it, which is so strange. I'm sure I probably would have found my way back to publishing, mm. but um, I just didn't. I didn't know at that point. Mm. I was like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, but I don't know if it's at a magazine about shopping. This was in my mm-hmm. like early throes of like casting around like a maniac. Um, but the moment where I feel like I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. It's an interesting question because I feel like. Even now, what is most satisfying about my job and you seem to be on the same trajectory mm-hmm. is just like the new mediums. Yeah. Um, so podcasting, I love doing the podcast. Um, the We're working on a TV show, which is really fun. Like all the different formats, we have a book in print mm-hmm. I, and I write a lot of books on the side. So I know that that's, I know my job is sort of weird like just to get really goopy like I'm sort of I feel like I'm a channel
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know what I mean where I'm like just bringing in the information or bringing out the yep. information and passing it through and then whatever the format is is interesting to me I mean I think if I weren't doing this I would be a therapist really totally I love hearing the way I, I really like talking to people Yep. I would kind of suck at a ther- as a therapist because I like to give advice too much <laughs>
2: but I I get that and I also you have said before like you're clearly an empath yeah and you also in the way that you prepare for interviews and podcasts it's clear that you probably have a similar technique to me, which I probably shouldn't go around saying it like this, but I will. I like to wear my guess as like a second skin. Yeah. Because that's the only way I can so describe it. So the silence of the lambs of year. I don't mean to be like... Put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> oh, that, a friend of mine, side note, we came up with a brilliant beauty business, like precious beauty, and then at checkout on the e-commerce, you go put the lotion in the basket. It'd be great. Um... <laughs> Side note, big side note. But I, do, but I do, I can tell that, and I think you have the same um, capability of when you're interviewing these incredible people and you obviously absorb all of their work, whether it's writing, whether it's visual or whatever it might be, and it does seem like you get into their head.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the fantasy, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, I think you want to it's like you want to extract I don't want to waste the opportunity right so it's like how do you extract the most value mm. um out of like all of this person's wisdom because mm. you can have like a million different conversations but yeah. you know like how yeah. are you getting the best parts that's why I like you I'm like I'll just I do a ton of research so that I can wing it and just let what happens happen yeah
2: yeah and the channel thing i just think is very interesting because what's i with my experience i've got 270 something episodes up you've obviously done a lot of, of a lot of these conversations a lot of research i wonder what sticks mm. and i wonder what um do you feel changed after conversations do totally you, more than the other things that you done more than the other channels more than editorial writing yeah and i know you've done ghost writing which probably sits in a similar space but do you feel i if i hadn't have recorded that episode i would still be thinking in a way that might be detrimental and now i feel like i'm doing well for having had that conversation yeah
3: well i think that there's like an emotional resonance that comes in the actual conversation Mm. and i think that's why audio to this day is still so powerful Um because you're also you're not distracted by visuals, you're not like you're just really tuning in to mm-hmm. what people are saying. Mm-hmm. and so for me, it's like I like written content for all the information that like you're you want to follow up on, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, yeah. or like the list making. but I think for the the that the wisdom bombs are those moments of like Oh, like that gut punch of mm. revelation or realization. Then podcast, and yes, like I feel like from every conversation, there's always one thing that sits with me. Sometimes mm-hmm. more, mm. but um, there's always like a, a little bit of a transformation.
2: Because it is, it's, and knowing that you're reaching lots of people as well, um, I wonder how you are able to ask how. Obviously, you've got to bring yourself into it a little bit. Yeah. But how do you make sure that you're asking the questions that the Goop listeners will?
3: Want yeah. Answered? That's like the channeling part, mm. I think. Um, in a sense, like, it's not like I'm disassociating. But one of the things that I think is really important is making sure, like, I, I there are certain podcasts there are lots of amazing podcasts. There are certain podcasts that sometimes I listen to because I like the guests, but where you feel like the host is flexing muscle the whole time and showing how much they know or how smart they are. Mm-hmm. And um, they tend to be more the, the masculine podcasts.
2: Brocasters.
3: The broadcasters, <laughs> and I what I really want and hope I do is make sure that people feel the listeners feel like I'm asking that they're that mm-hmm. I'm asking the follow-ups that they would mm-hmm. ask and that even the questions that might seem silly or shameful because it's like that I'm willing to ask those too. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Does that know? come
2: back to not being scared to ask questions yeah totally and always and not being and being okay with not being the smartest
3: person exactly and um not like in no way trying to I don't I'm interviewing someone because I think I respect their their opinion and their intelligence Mm -hmm. and I want to like everyone wants to hear from them so -hmm. it's just like trying to set them up yeah to express that and then not leave the reader or the listener frustrated that I'm Missing that I'm missing the conversation because I'm looking at my questions and not paying attention to what they're actually saying. Mm. You know?
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: I hear you. I want to come back to one of your quotes about work before we okay. move on any further, which is... And this is the one that really got me. Um, I spent a lot of time... This is, I think, early on in your career. I spent a lot of time wanting to be seen. It took me a long time to shake that off, mm. to realize I needed to be an advocate for myself, and more importantly, to put my shoulder in it, into it and create momentum. Yes. I think that... Literally, I feel like I might put that on my wall.
3: <laughs> You're funny. Yeah, no, I... I think I, w- I know what you're talking about when I said it, too, because I feel like um, I grew... when I So I'm almost 40, and I grew up in Missoula, Montana, which is, like, a small town, and it was, like, the, the conversation of the day was about, like, dis- people being discovered. It was, like, star search, and Kate Moss spotted on an airplane and turned into a supermodel, and it was this idea that, like, these people who knew regardless of and not really talent shows even, but that like the that being someone or being something in the world was a function of someone spotting you. Mm-hmm. And I it like and I don't think I'm alone in feeling like that was sort of the programming. And it's very eighties movement. Yeah. Yes, but that's like that was what was sort of in the atmosphere
1: mm.
3: and when I got to lucky and was, I was sort of like, but don't people know that like, I shouldn't be at this magazine. Like this, that's really when I was so confused about Mm. why I was at this shopping magazine (laughs) and what I was doing with my life. Um, and, and then I realized I was like, that's not how it works. Like HR is not going to be like you, like you've got something special. Let's, we have big ideas for you kid. Mm -hmm. Like it just doesn't work like that. I don't think in indie industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and I realized like I needed to make this happen and then sort of going back to what we were saying about leaving lucky for timeout. It was the first time that I realized like if I create momentum, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: no one's going to like reach out and offer me another job. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to have to apply and look and, and network and, try to create momentum in my own life and then only then did I realize like doors start opening. Mm-hmm. Like the universe will be on your side, but you have to take the initiative.
2: Yeah, you have to do. Um do you listen to James Altucher No, should I? He he's a really good uh he's male but he I wouldn't cast him as a broadcaster. But he um he asked he does great interviews, but one of the things he said is no one wakes up and and no one's first thought is i hope james altucher like makes enough money today i hope james altucher okay today that's yeah. that's my job <laughs> i love that and that was i liked hearing it in that way it was only recently i heard it and i was like oh my yes
3: yes no and i think that that i mean that's what we're about at goop too it's this self advocacy mm. and autonomy over our own health and taking responsibility for your relationships and mm. um and this is there's like this subtle distinction because there's so much trauma in the world, and there's so much- partic- you know systemic racism and systemic abuse and like it's not fair mm. anywhere, um particularly in america and um I was talking to i interviewed Anita Marjani for the um podcast and the very i think she was the first podcast interview I ever did. We went on for way too long, but her story is so fascinating. She had this near-death experience and then um, saw her dad in the afterlife, came back into her body and spontaneously healed from her end-stage lymphoma. It's an amazing, she's amazing. It's an amazing story. I think Ridley Scott like owns the life rights to her um, (laughs) story. Um, But she was saying, she was like, there's just a very important distinction, which is that you're not responsible for what happens to you or what has happened to you but you are responsible to yourself
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and so because i think a lot of us get really stuck and rutted in this but that wasn't fair that's not fair Mm -hmm. and no it's not um but it is still your responsibility to yourself to like try and heal it and move on and bounce back bounce back
2: yeah I always feel the not, the not fair thing, that's not fair thing, when I've done it, because obviously I'm a flawed human being, I've done it. It's because I've been looking for a committee to agree
3: with me. Totally, yeah. It's just a
2: waste of time, just let we on.
3: It is a waste of time, and it is, like, placing blame, whether it's on yourself or others, is a waste of energy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I want to ask you about making the leap to L.A. Yeah. and doing the Shopzilla thing, because that, on paper, would probably have been... Not the wise, not the sensible move, so I'm mm-hmm. curious about risk taking, and I know you've talked about momentum and the universe will have your back, but that first leap moment when the back of your neck feels really hot, and you're like, "What are we doing yeah, um what do you remember about that, and what would you what do you take from that that you would advise other people who might be on the brink of a similar decision?
3: You know, I think i was I had climbed up high enough in the mass head that i like could i understood um what going higher would look like at a magazine. And I, I think like the, the editor in chief role, like my ego didn't need that. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Not to say that that's what drives people to want those jobs. But I was like, you know, I, I don't need that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's going to make, I know that that's like a little bit of a dry rock. And they approached me about this job. And at first I was like, no, like, I am getting married, I can't move to L.A., and what's this job? And I tried to, like, foist other candidates on them. (laughs) And then in the process of talking to who then became my boss, I was like, oh, my God, he's so fun. And, like, why wouldn't I do this? And who Mm. cares? And, um who cares if no one knows what this is and it's kind of lame. And um, like, to me, it also felt like from an ego perspective, like a healthy move Mm -hmm. to detach from caring about something like the brand name of where I worked, Mm -hmm. Um, that that's not where my relevance, that's like not a healthy way to find your relevance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, in retrospect, it was insane. But I just figured, I was like, you know, in looking ahead... The world will always need content, and, and, they'll need, and people need the editing of content. Like, mm-hmm. they need access to good information. There's so much information. So I know I'll be able to, um, I know I'll always be able to find some sort of job. And to be honest, again, going back to my need to be doing all the time, I had started ghostwriting books when I was young, I did my first book was with um, Lauren Conrad from The Hills,
1: LC. her style
3: guide, and um, LC. and I did it because I wanted an extra, like, financial security or a place that I could theoretically fall. And it served me really well for that reason as a, a bridge, even if it's just like an emotional security blanket. Because when I made that move can't remember what I was writing at the time on the side, but I was like, you know what, if this doesn't work out, I'll just, I'll like write more books and help people turn, help some of these people create brands. Mm. And so I don't know, it kept me balanced and it made me feel like I could actually take a risk because I had a safety net. And Mm. I think for a lot of people, Um, that's really important because there's so much mythology in our culture about um, successful entrepreneurs and startups, whether it's Bill Gates or any other number of people. Bill Gates did not drop out of college. He took a leave of absence. He was funded by his parents. He, um, there wasn't a lot of risk. And when you actually look, when you start to look at the myth of the startup mm. person and unwind it. You're like, oh, they all had sort of backup plans. They all had, um, they all had some sort of security. Mm-hmm. It's very rare for someone to actually like make a crazy leap and not. Mm. And so I think for anyone who's considering a career move or doing something dramatic, I interviewed this uh, this. Awesome woman, Amy Whitaker, who is an MFA, MBA, and, the, and I love the way she described it, which is for creatives who she works with who are trying to like find financial security in some sort of business. She's like, you focus on that. you can have all the throw pillows in the world and all these sort of creative side projects and like see if you can get them to take root, but like you need the IKEA couch first, you know? Like you have to. It's really important to build some measure of security so that you feel this, this safe being creative mm. and safe like being expansive in some way because it, it's it's terrifying there's always a reason not to
2: totally and do you, can you put your finger on why it was just i'm sure there were so many reasons not to yeah but did it was it just a feeling in your gut do you trust your
3: gut i do trust my gut I felt like it was important. I felt like I could see where Conde Nast was going. I could see that I wasn't developing any new skills. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, there were Conde Nast was like uh, Conde Nast Traveler, where I was. The editorial team was amazing, like full of incredible characters and lovely people. Many of whom had been there for like twenty or thirty years, and I was. It was like, that doesn't seem safe to me in this new world economy. Mm. Like, that's just not really how it works anymore. Mm. And so I felt like I need to keep moving and evolving because that's the nature of the world that we live in now.
2: And one of the things that you are able to do really well is spot a white space and also scale up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm curious about spotting a white space and getting it right? Because that, I mean, if you do any research on you, even five minutes, that's one of the things that you come back with, which is um, Goop, particularly, we're ahead of the curve with the mm-hmm. podcast, the way that they do business, the way that even the uh, structure of the, uh, the hierarchy of the company, like mm-hmm. there is no traditional hierarchy. Yeah. Um, but have you ever been wrong? <laughs> or how, yeah. do you, Or do you know, do you spot a white space and do you just think it might not be the right thing, but I'm going to go at it hell for leather and yeah, until it isn't the right thing.
3: Well, I think, and this is, again, something I learned at Lucky, which was that magazine was created, and it was a totally revolutionary magazine at the time, even though it makes so much sense. But um, the style of real women, shooting real women, mm-hmm. putting the credits on the page, um, high-low mix, like including things that are affordable... Nothing that sounds insane at all now, but at the time was not how it was done. And Kim France created that magazine because there was an absence. Like there was something missing. There was a white space. Mm -hmm. And the way that we thought about it was like, how do we write? Like we're writing for our best friend, a smartest best friend. Because again, I think that there was a tendency with women's magazines to really talk down to readers. Mm -hmm. And then if we want this thing then that must mean by extension that maybe our friends want this thing mm. and friends of friends. And one of the things that I did at Lucky was I covered um, tech, online and technology and its emergence, like as e-commerce was coming online. I sound really old, but it's true. <laughs> and You're not even 40 yet. It was, <laughs> it was death side after death side with these men mm. who were like, I've developed this website for how women will shop for jeans. I'm like, that no... Fucking woman shops for jeans like that. It mm. was so untethered to any real behavior. And so I think what we, we've seen is a lot of business is still dominated by white men mm-hmm. and that's starting to slowly change um, as it becomes more, it's still completely underrepresented mm. in business in general. Like the there are only 33 women and this, the CEOs and Fortune 500, there are only... Um, there's one black woman who is the interim CEO of bed, bath and beyond, but previously there's only ever been one black woman. Um, there are three black men, like it's extreme underrepresentation, mm. but the world is changing. The world is predominantly female and it is becoming increasingly diverse and will only become more diverse. And the people who understand the behavior of women are women. Mm. um, And the people who understand, um, who are diverse understand their own culture better Mm -hmm. than a white man. Mm -hmm. And so I think by following white space, it's really just understanding what women want Mm -hmm. and tapping into that. So I feel like we're going to see, and all of the research also supports that companies with a woman on the leadership team have better earnings. Mm -hmm. Same with companies with good representation in general. Because you're, it makes sense. Like those, there's, there's more creative thinking. People mm-hmm. are thinking outside of the box. Like The synergy is greater. And also they're creating products for, and for behaviors that they understand and for cultural needs that they can recognize. Mm. And so I don't even know how we got there. But I think the white space comes not from being like a seer, but just being like in a position where we can make things that we actually mm. want. Instead of a bunch of men being like, I know what women want. And now let's go make this weird experience that is not at all how women shop.
2: Mm. Well, that's one of the things I noticed as well is um, having worked on magazines myself, they are usually made by women. Yep. Women's Interest Magazine, made, but paid for, run at the higher levels by men. But that's the, not what happens with Goop. Yeah. It's all women, tens across the board, as one might say. It's yeah. all women. Yeah, 80% women made by women, but also making the decisions at the board director level, right. female as well. Yeah, And I, there was something else I saw that you said about uh, the way that it's structured, is that if somebody is a star in their department, in their particular area, the way that you've structured the business, they will have an opportunity to stand out, which mm-hmm. is what we were talking about earlier about being seen.
3: Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> I know that kind of goes counter to what I was saying. But I think that that, but, um, but yes, I think that it's a very flat organization. Theoretically, like we have org charts. Nobody really sees them or Mm. refers to them. It's not how we work. And that's, it's not how Gwyneth is. Um, When I started, I assumed because I came from old school media that it would be, that she would, want to talk to me and then I would need to disperse it to the relevant people on the team.
1: (laughs) Yes,
3: But no, she like, she like mixes it up with everyone. Like Mm -hmm. she doesn't understand why there would be like three intermediaries in between. So, and I think that it's, so much more refreshing things that aren't lost in translation and then everyone feels Mm. again feels recognized for their work and feels like they can actually make a contribution and that they're getting credit for it and it's not even about the credit I think it's about the autonomy and the ownership Mm. um, and that what they're doing matters
2: it's a really good example of somebody who has had a completely different experience because movie star completely different experience coming into business and coming at it with a new angle. And actually, uh, she was on Graham Norton, if you're in the UK listeners, you'll know. And uh, she was talking about the conversation that um, her dad had with her after she won the Oscar, where she's like, you're kind of becoming a bit of an (laughs) arsehole. And when she was describing it, she actually used... um, an expression which seems to be her thing of kind of creating these new ways of looking at mm-hmm. something that we kind of know what it is already, where she said, when you become famous, obstacles are removed. Yes. As opposed to, you know, you just, you get everything that you want. And I, I thought that was, when I was doing the research on Goop, I thought that's very interesting because she's coming at it and she's not letting anybody inform her or she's not using business vocabulary mm-hmm. to figure out or or say what the business is or what it shouldn't be. She's just going, "Well, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's not how it would work." So, let's try this.
3: Totally. It and it's fresh. It is fresh and disruptive and um because she didn't come up in corporate America, mm. like she didn't get thrashed in corporate America either, and so she doesn't have that she doesn't have the bad habits. Nor does she have that sort of, well, I had to pay my dues, bitch. So, like, <laughs> go get my dry cleaning. Like, she doesn't believe in that or subscribe to that. And so I think it's um, a, made it a really different sort of work mm-hmm. experience where, sure, you have to earn your seat at the table, but it's not necessarily through grunt work. Grunt work. Yeah. There's grunt work, but we all kind of do it.
2: Well, that was another thing you said that I thought was great. Um, if you aren't willing to roll up your sleeves with everyone else, how can you call yourself a leader?
3: Totally. And I 100% agree with that. I, I feel deeply uncomfortable if I don't know how things are working mm. um, or how the work gets done. Because if I don't understand that, then I can't figure out how to resource it. I can't help people troubleshoot it. Mm. So there are certain things that I, I don't, do anymore, but there are certain things that I still will jump in and do. Where my husband is like, "Really? Like, <laughs> are you really gonna sit there?" Like, we just did a whole travel migration on the site, and I went through to make sure all the all the like restaurant listings were associated with the right neighborhoods, and there weren't duplicate. Like, really tedious, banal, um, old school magazine, like stuff. internship level. <laughs> Work And I spent probably 40 hours on it um, while we were watching TV. But I was like, you know what? Like, I want to make sure it's done right. If I don't want to put this on the team, like, they're already mm. grinding and producing so much weekly content. Like, I can do it. I'm fast. Mm. So, and it's important to me to still understand how structurally how the site is built and how everything's being produced. Mm. And let's talk about the content because... Goop is over 10
2: years old now. Yeah, can you believe it? It'll be 11 in September. From the first newsletter. Yeah. It has scaled up. Yeah. And there's a hell of a lot on there. And obviously, it has polarized. Yeah, that's fair. Um, do, do, do you think, see that as a good thing?
3: Yes, because I think it's beca- it's interesting. Mm. And I think that it is... Um, has continued to stay relevant in part because we're willing to have and force uncomfortable conversations Mm. and explore things that are new and, um, keep pushing, Mm. you know, whether it's about women's sexuality or health or, um, new treatment modalities or ancient treatment modalities. Um, I think that, you know, I think a lot of it originally came from you're an actress Like, what do you, you have no business doing anything else or having an opinion about anything. But I think now it's, it's evolved past that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it goes to this idea of women sort of challenging the status quo Mm -hmm. and a lot of the wellness content on the site. And a lot of those conversations really come out of a place of women who feel like we've been overlooked and ignored by conventional medicine for too long, mm. you know, with some grave health repercussions. And so um, we're pushing mm-hmm. and like, it's changing.
2: What's the misconception? Because when I, uh, I've used the term goopy before, if I've sort of wanted to say, oh, that might be.
3: Yeah, too out there.
2: Yeah, I have definitely used that expression before. Yeah. If
3: you don't mind. No.
2: Um, but some of the criticism is almost, um well, I can't afford to do that. Or why would I do that? Or that doesn't make any good, that doesn't make good medical sense. But it is the misconception that you're saying, do
3: this. Is
2: it that you're just offering information?
3: I think that people, for for whatever reason, assume that we're being prescriptive. Mm. Um, And I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. The reality for anyone who actually comes to the site is that we aren't being prescriptive at all. And if anything, we're not, inserting ourselves. So we run um, full Q&As with doctors, experts, scientists, researchers, and we ask questions and again, try to make sure we're covering our bases and that everything we do isn't leaving people with more questions Mm -hmm. and letting them speak for themselves on their work or on their experience treating patients. And with the idea being, and I think readers of the site know this and recognize this, like there might be things that are resonant in there Mm -hmm. for you that you can then take and ask your own doctor or apply to your own diet. But and no, there's no version of us saying like, this is how you have, everyone needs Mm -hmm. to eat this way. And um, this is how you need to be. I think the whole point actually is like, let's move the judgment aside, people. And some things really work for some people. Like if if it works for them, like more power to them, you know. Yeah, it's almost an anti-prescriptive. Um, like let's everything everyone's different, mm. and we all need different things, and um, and that I think is also threatening because the, in that there's implied a certain amount of self-autonomy, and sort of going back to what we were saying, mm. like it, my health is my responsibility. And it's my doctor's not going to keep me well, not in the way that Western medicine is practiced in the United States, at least. Like, it's my job to keep myself because well. Because of accessibility
2: and eligibility and cost and.
3: Yeah, like we don't really, in the US at least, we're terrible at preventative medicine. Mm. You really don't go and see a doctor. I mean, you go for your annual pap smear, but you really don't go and see the doctor until you're sick and you have a diagnosis code. Mm. You don't go with this idea of like maintaining vitality and particularly for women, like you have a baby and you're depleted and then maybe you have another and then you're really depleted and no one really pays attention Mm. to you or listens to you or looks into what might be going on with you until you have like a full blown autoimmune disease.
2: Right. There's
3: no, um, and you guys are way ahead of us because you have paid maternity leave, We don't even have paid family leave in the United States.
2: I know all of my friends who've moved to America and then had babies. They're like, oh, I was on maternity leave for six weeks. I'm like,
3: what? And they were probably unpaid, you know, like it's up to your employer to Mm. pay you. And most companies or a lot of company, not most actually, goop a lot of tech companies like we pay maternity leave, some companies like Netflix will pay for a year, Mm. um, to give the equivalent of what people in the UK get. But, um, most companies and and most people in America are hourly workers. They do not get a single paid hour to have a baby. It is insane. It's criminal. And it's, it traps people in poverty and it, um, it's terrible for kids and families and, um, we we really need help like we really need mm. policy changes and legislation but it's an example of just like how women in particular in in america are sort of ignored mm. until there's like a real health crisis
2: that's what really struck me when i was uh researching and somebody wrote a brilliant piece where they just essentially said um goop is at the zenith of this wellness mm-hmm. complex and one of the reasons is it's a place where actually you can be seen you can be heard it's kind Mm -hmm. um you can ask uh, an embarrassing question what might be seen as an embarrassing question you can arm yourself with information yeah not everything might work for you not all of the solutions might be up your street but then i i um what you've said about it is you credit your reader with intelligence totally that's the yes which i think is the missing piece in the criticism
3: it's, it, yes. And so much of the criticism is it's very misogynist and it's very embedded in the culture to the point where I think people don't even recognize it, which is this idea that they assume that women are lemmings and that if Gwyneth Paltrow thinks that you should eat this way, that everyone's just rushing to eat that way. And that is not how women function. Like mm-hmm. we are perfectly capable of reading something, assessing it, parsing it. And saying, hmm, like this is resonant for me or that might actually be what's happening or not for mm-hmm. me. It's so um, a kind of patronizing this idea that, and it's kind of hilarious too, that that people believe that we're so prescriptive or so have so mm-hmm. much authority and women have such an inability to determine, make decisions for themselves mm-hmm. that... Um, That we need to be contained in some way. When really it's like, here's some information. We think this is important and interesting. Take it or leave it. Yeah, this is Without judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Here's here's what we know about it. Totally. Yeah. We think this is really interesting. It has credence. There's some really promising science. Well, it's the labeling as
2: well. Did you go do that? Yeah. Did it take 40 hours
3: in front of the TV? Oh, the... um, (laughs) The labeling... Like ancient modality, speculative but interesting... Yeah, and we did that not really for our readers who completely understand where we're going from mm-hmm. coming from, but we did it just for the wider public to be like, very clear, this is like an ancient modality or this is rigorously backed by science or this is speculative but mm-hmm. interesting. Um, again, I think just this underlining of people get it, but if mm-hmm. you need to make sure that women understand... Here you go. Mm-hmm. Here's a billboard. <laughs> now, there is a new way to uh, enjoy Goop content,
2: which is the Netflix show. Yeah.
3: Which is happening...
2: Is it around the time of the 11th birthday?
3: No, it'll it'll come out next year. Okay. Yeah. I wish it were coming out. And is hour. it
2: going to be similar to the podcast? Is it going to be like editorialized conversations with experts?
3: A little bit. It's, min- it's a wellness... Um, Like wellness mini docs.
2: Wellness mini docs.
3: I like it. Yeah. It's a different format. It'll be a little different, but I still think it'll feel like very goopy. Mm
2: -hmm. And if you had to define goopy.
3: What's goopy? (laughs) What's goopy? That's a great question. What is goopy? I mean, I think it's like, if I were to define it as a, a reader type of person, it's like anyone who's sort of interested in asking questions not not challenging the status quo just to challenge the status quo but literally wanting to understand Mm -hmm. like where does this come from and what's the foundation of this and could I have a better relationship with my mother and do I fight with my husband in a bad way like it's sort of that it's like the person who I think has a lot of curiosity about the way that things are done and whether they could be done Mm -hmm. better
2: room almost like the room to grow like could I improve this area yeah even if it's Improving what I eat so that I don't bloat. As simple totally. as that.
3: As simple as that. And that's what I think is fun about Goop is that there are people who are new to the brand who come because they're like, oh, like being chronically constipated isn't how you're supposed, isn't normal. Mm. And then they sort of start there. And then there are the people who are like, oh, I don't eat lectins and I have a medium, and who are just like beyond Goopy, you know, like driving the boat in terms of what's next in wellness.
2: But that's the thing, I've had a couple of nutritionists on this podcast who have said that um, someone will eventually come and see them and they'll, she'll say, so how long have you been having digestive issues? And they'll be like, oh, 16 years. Yeah. Because somebody has has said to them, you know that that's not normal and you know it's okay to go and check it out. Right. Which is kind of channeling what you're saying. You can yeah. just you can find out, you can read an article and find out that maybe this thing that you've been putting up with or just assumed was normal might be something you can take action on.
3: Totally. And I think that people accept things as normal that are deeply unnormal. I mean, that's how my husband was when I met him. Like the worst gas, like just, I was like, this is not normal. And he's like, no, it is normal. I've always been like this. I'm like, just because you've always been like this and your dad was like, this doesn't mean that it's normal. Mm. And sure enough, like, He, I was like, just humor me. This is even before I got to goop. I was like, let's take out gluten. And we took out, because he was so addicted to carbs. Um, And we took out gluten and he's already a thin guy, but he had like a kind of a tummy. And within like two weeks, he had lost like 15 pounds. This is why men suck. Um, (laughs) But he'd lost (laughs) like 15 pounds, had no digestive issues. And he was like, oh my God. But he thought I was crazy until I actually got him to do it.
2: It's interesting. It's all really interesting stuff. And obviously so interesting that people are flying to London. I know people have, uh, one of the first conferences, some people flew across America. Yeah. Because it was the only place where they could have a proper conversation about their autoimmune disease or felt that they could have a proper conversation.
3: Yeah, no, it's become, these summits have become places of, um, community. And at the last one in Los Angeles, there was a woman who had become my friend on Instagram. Cause she's from Idaho and I'm from Montana. And she had, she was like, where do you, t- like, how do you talk about this stuff in Montana when you're home? Because people think I'm batshit crazy. <laughs> and so she came to the summit, um, and was with a woman from Portland and like people commune mm-hmm. and can, yeah, like find, people who understand what they're talking about and are interested in the same things. A group of women came from Australia to LA who were hilarious and so much fun. And it's really, they're really powerful days and you know, it's expensive because we put, we like absolutely they're like weddings. They're so, we put so much energy into creating these amazing days and like the gift bag is always worth more than the value of the ticket Mm -hmm. and um, like the women from Australia and LA where the one was saying at the end, she was like, you know, I was so nervous about doing this because I thought like I'm flying across the world and I'm spending a lot of money to do this experience. And what if it's terrible? And then she was like, but literally like it was worth it in the first 10 minutes. And I was like, thank you. That is the nicest compliment. She's like one event, one moment of it made it worth it. Cause so I think sometimes it's like those small mm. one. I think it's the community and being se- feeling seen. Yeah. And then it's also like that the podcast nuggets or like that one l- panel or the one class where something in you shifts. Mm.
2: I would say you might have heard something a million times before, but it's hearing it in the right context in the right moment where suddenly it's like,
3: boom, like that person's talking to me. Yes. And
2: that's now, now I get it. And now everything's different. Totally. That's great. Well, I need to let you get off to your summit. Ooh.
3: <laughs> um,
2: thank you so much for joining me, listeners. Obviously, everything that has been discussed will be in the show notes, <laughs> <laughs> which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this podcast. I will put uh, links to Elise uh, in the show notes as well. Please do read up on her. Please do follow her on social. Please Aww, engage with
3: her. Thank you. Um,
2: it's, it's actually been super, not just fun talking to you, researching huh? wearing you like buffalo bill
3: <laughs> you're in the well um it was was, was really pleasure. i hope the lotion is non-toxic and goop approved um i uh, <laughs> yes i will have to upgrade my my dungeon
2: <laughs> cosmetics uh, another time but, uh, but anyway before this gets too mad thank you so much thank you for having me emma Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. If you wanted to get in touch with me, it can't, it literally couldn't be easier. Just email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or please do go over to uh, Instagram or Twitter where I am at Emma Guns and just send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to maybe chat to me and other listeners of the show, then do click the link in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join the Facebook group. Answer two questions and there you will find thousands of other listeners keen to have a conversation with you about this episode and more. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your time and I cannot wait to see you on the next one.